we live in a world of cause and effect, don't we? And uh, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about being an engineer. You work with real things in the real world and you got real results that really worked. Well, most of the time. All based on this principle of cause and effect. But one of the differences between the real physical world in which we live and the area of faith and beliefs is that there's not such a strong link between cause and effect. We're baptized and appear to be the same person as before. We pray for something and... Often, nothing much seems to change immediately anyway. We receive communion uh, each week, and yet we still struggle to match our deeds with our faith. So the parable uh, before us this morning from Luke chapter 18 is particularly relevant because it helps us see the wider picture that can help resource our faith in the face of injustice and a painful delay very often in seeing any improvement in a given situation, when there doesn't seem to be any connection between our prayers and the things we're praying for. So this is called the parable of the unjust judge. It's unique to Luke's gospel. And the text says that this judge neither feared God nor had any respect for people. Now, in Jewish society, law courts were usually made up of three judges, one appointed by the plaintiff, one by the defendant, and one independently appointed. So this judge can't have been from that Jewish system, it must have been part of the Roman system and was one of the paid magistrates appointed by the Romans. And such judges had quite a notorious reputation. Unless a plaintiff had influence or could pay a bribe, uh, there was little hope of settling a case. Fortunately, to all the legal people here, here this morning, things have changed quite a lot since then. But in this city was a widow who wanted to bring a case against an opponent. And in, again, in ancient Jewish society, a woman by herself was particularly vulnerable. She needed a male sponsor, either in the form of a father, a husband, or a son. But there's no mention of any support person here for this woman at all. Now, as it turned out, someone had taken advantage of her and she had experienced a great injustice. Uh, and this was no parking infringement type thing. This was really serious, a matter of life or death. I heard just the other day, actually, from, from a lawyer uh, who's recently joined the Livestreams congregation, that in our own city, he had heard news and worked with a person who'd received an insurance payout for her quake-damaged home but the insurer had taken advantage of her vulnerability, it would seem, and the money wasn't nearly enough to undertake repairs. And in her effort to get justice, first of all, engineers and quantity surveyors and lawyers, a whole lot of professionals, had all tried to assist her to a degree, but had also taken advantage of her and her precious pool of payout money had gradually disappeared. So even today... We have those who, without the support of family or some sponsor or skilled person in their life, turn out to be very vulnerable and end up on a gradual downward slide. But this woman had one thing on her side. It says that she kept coming to the judge, asking that her case be heard, pleading for justice. And even though this particular judge was corrupt and was himself perhaps waiting for a bribe from her, who knows? He eventually said to himself, this woman is going to be the death of me. 
She is so persistent. I simply can't take any more. I will hear her case and give her the justice she pleads for just to be rid of her. And the phrase, wear me out, in that sentence is actually an idiom in ancient times used of the boxing ring. And it means to give a person a black eye. In other words, the judge is saying that seeing this woman show up time and again is like being beaten black and blue. So you have this delicious image of a bag lady swinging her handbag at the judge and giving him a black eye. This is quite a colourful expression that we need to get to grips with. This woman didn't have many resources, but she did have persistence and determination, and eventually she received the justice she deserved. So this parable is saying that if an unjust judge will, because of the persistence of a plaintiff, eventually exercise justice, how much more will God, who is compassionate and merciful, Render justice to his children. This is an argument from lesser to greater. The judge is not directly being compared to God. It's a contrasting comparison. And so we return to our conundrum uh, I started with. We want to see a clear link between cause and effect, don't we? In our scientific age, most of us are not particularly comfortable with woolly spiritual principles that cannot be proven. And so... What tends to happen for many of us is that our prayer life, our hope, and our spirituality are at risk of being impoverished. They shrivel away before the assault of our highly pragmatic and results-driven society. We become easily discouraged, far too easily discouraged, when we pray and nothing much seems to happen. We pray for a short time. We might have best intentions. And then we just, well, give up. But here Jesus is saying that our prayers and our longings to see the justice and goodness of God prevail in our families, in our communities, our nation and world must be undergirded with an attitude of dogged determination. We must continue to cry out to God. We must continue hoping that things will indeed change. And we must continue to pray, to pray, and to pray. More things are wrought through prayer than this world dreams of, so said Lord Tennyson, and I believe it to be true. However, there is a dimension to this parable that is unsettling, and it is this. If God is good, and if God is powerful, as we believe him to be, why then does he seem to delay in bringing justice? Why is there a delay while people are suffering? Why is there the separation between when we pray and ask for relief and when God takes conquering action? Why the separation between cause and effect? And the specific verse I have in mind is verse, verses 7 and 8, which say, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Rhetorical question, of course. Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. This passage clearly teaches that God will not delay 
in answering our prayers and bringing justice, but there is indeed a delay in most people's experiences. Why is this? Now, this vexed question is so challenging in both philosophy and theology that it actually has a name, theodicy. And theodicy, in summary, is about the apparent contradiction between the goodness and power of God on the one hand and the persistence of evil in the world on the other. Surely the goodness of God should propel him to action and surely the power of God should enable him to do so. So why does God delay? Why aren't our prayers answered more promptly? Why is there still evil in the world which seems so intractable? These are real questions because the issue of the presence of evil and suffering touches on every single person. Every person here today will know exactly what I'm talking about. It covers the mosque shootings. It covers illness. It covers earthquakes. It covers accidents and a million other things that blight our lives and our world. And there are really only two responses at the end of the day. Either we accept that there is some deeper reason why God delays, or we give up on God altogether. And many today seem to be choosing the latter rather than the former. They reason that evil and suffering is so pervasive in the world that they simply cannot believe in the existence of God, let alone the good and holy God of Christianity. But wait a moment. You must think very carefully before you go down that track. Because to reject the existence of God has its own set of problems and challenges. And you end up actually solving nothing. For example, rejecting God does not solve the problem of evil. Evil still exists. But what you have done is reject any hope that goodness will eventually overcome evil and that justice will be done. If we reject God, we also reject the notion that there will be accountability for those who have perpetrated evil. And of course, you devolve that idea, it involves us as well, of course, giving account for our lives before God. And this is exactly what the atheists say, interestingly. The most famous uh, atheist of them all, Richard Dawkins, which I end up quoting quite a lot, um, said, in what has become a very famous quote, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason for it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. End of quote. Just in case you thought part of that was me. So, if we reject the existence of God, then according to Dawkins, we must also reject objective goodness, objective evil, and justice. Because those qualities are anchored in a moral, good, all-loving God. And if we don't have God, we have no right to call evil absolutely evil. And yet there is a pervasive feeling deep down in all of us that some things are 
objectively evil. And some things are objectively good. And that deep down there ought to be justice. And that people shouldn't get away with the wrong they have done. That one day the innocent will be vindicated. And that evil will be no more. These are deep feelings that every person has, I contend. Furthermore, of course, we believe that at the heart of our faith, there is Jesus Christ on the cross. Every Christian worship gathering has a cross to remind us of the centrality of what Jesus Christ did for us. And there are many ways of understanding this, but at least one way involves realizing that through Jesus Christ, God entered into our human condition and completely aligned himself with us. God bound himself to our humanity, never to let us go again. And on the cross took into himself all the evil and wrongdoing of the world and transformed it. And through his resurrection, he himself was transformed into a new kind of existence. We talk about death being swallowed up in victory. And that is an important meaning of the cross. Through Jesus Christ, evil will be dealt with, good will triumph, and justice will be done. Now this brings me to my final point. And if you have your Bibles opened, and I know at least a few have, um, you will look at a particular word in verse 8, which is really the sticking point, And it's the word quickly. It says God will quickly grant justice to them. But this word is sometimes translated in slightly different ways. Sometimes it's translated certainly or surely, implying that the inevitability of the justice coming rather than the, the speed of the justice. And I think that's very significant because in Christ, God's justice will prevail. It might not be addressed today or tomorrow or next week. And in God's wisdom, there is a reason why things are sometimes allowed to unfold. But God will surely and certainly establish justice upon the earth. So, pray with dogged determination. I know many of you do, but let me encourage you to do it more. Pray with perseverance. Pray for justice and that God's kingdom will come. And believe with me that prayer and that which we pray for are indeed linked. But not in a wooden cause and effect kind of way where somehow we want God to dance to all our tunes and it's all about me and my prayer. No, through the deep and mysterious purposes of God, we understand our prayers to be answered. Let us cooperate with God through prayer and with perseverance. Amen.